Good morning. Our reading from God's Word this morning is from Psalm 125 and 126. So starting off, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with evildoers. Peace be on Israel. And Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, they were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. May the Lord bless his word this morning. Well, good morning again and welcome. We are continuing our series this morning through the Songs of Ascent. It's a series that we've titled Pilgrim Songs, and they're songs that allow faith to give voice to hope. I want to begin this morning by addressing the young people uh, among us. So if you have kids and you've sent them away, bring them back for just a second, because it's really important that they hear the message of what these psalms is all about. Uh, if, you're, if you're a younger person or, or maybe you're just young in the faith, you're maybe finding yourself struggling to understand what all this Christianity and church stuff is all about. Uh, for many people, it feels like it's something that they were brought up in. It was something that their parents maybe passed down to them or something that they heard about in school. But my encouragement to you this morning, particularly if you're a young person, is that in the church, you are brought into a story that has been written a long time before you even got here you actually have a particular space and place in that story. We all love stories. Uh, my family, we love to watch the Marvel movies and we love to see, read, about the, read and watch about the superheroes and all their different powers and, and, and capabilities. Uh, and oftentimes when we hear those stories, we, we sit back and we think, oh, I would just wanna be so, so special. I would, wouldn't it be so great to be a part of, of the universe like that, to have a special part to play? to have something significant that I can contribute. And I wanna tell you this morning that you do have a significant part in that story. And if you're a young person, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a little kid or, or if you're uh, a teenager or, or a tweenager somewhere in, in between, uh, a young adult, uh, or maybe you're well, well, well on in years, uh, you have a part in this story. And sometimes we wonder because we look outside and we see that there's a lot of things that don't seem to go our way. And we might be tempted to think, if I'm so special, if I'm a part of this story, why are things so hard? It's when we're facing problems like that, that this, these two Psalms are important. 
when I was a kid, my parents used to drive us to the beach and we would go to the beach. It was a special trip and whenever we would go in the car, we would put on uh, my mom's favorite album of Billy Joel and I, and I have memories. We would sing Billy Joel songs really loud and it was just sort of this memory for me of what it was like to be carefree and to be, and to be uh, happy. This is what songs do. So the reason that we're studying these songs today is because these are songs that reminded people of the way things actually are, even when it doesn't look like that's what's going on. And so whether you're a, a young person or a grown-up, uh, songs and music are really, really important because they highlight for us and they allow us, they allow us to feel the truths even when we can't see them. And if you're a kid this morning, you need to know really, really clearly that God protects you and that God will restore you, that you're a part of that story, or at least he's inviting you into that. And so your parents are bringing you to church not because, well, it's just what they're supposed to do because they're parents. They're having you involved in this because they recognize that there is a great story that God is writing. And it's a story that you get to be a part of and you get to take your place in. And so while you may not understand everything that I'm going to say today, and, and if, you, if you need to go out and, 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 and go work on an activity or something else that your parents might have set up for you, that's fine. But always remember this, that God protects you and he cares for you. He cares for you so much that he wanted you to be a part of this story, this story that goes on forever. And if you're, a, if you're an adult and you've maybe forgotten some of that, I encourage you, that's the purpose of these songs. These psalms don't tell us so much what to think, but tell us where to look. Not what to think, but where to look. And in times like this, you may have found that your faith was strengthened over the course of your life by the traditions and the formalities of church. And now when you can't have those things or when maybe you're having to face these questions on your own for the first time, it might feel like you're a bit unstable. I encourage you this morning to listen to the heart of these psalms because again, they will show you where to look and they will restore your confidence. With that, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into God's word this morning. We're told that his word is powerful and effective and that it is able to cut to the very heart of who we are and is able to speak to us because God is alive and he cares for us. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, would you encourage us this morning from your word? May we see the wonderful truths that you have set for us here. And may you bless us today because you've blessed your son, Jesus Christ, our savior, and we belong to him. It's in his name we pray, amen. This uh, title of this sermon is Looking Up for Assurance. If you've been following with us, last week was about looking up for mercy and recognizing that all of us need to be forgiven, that all of us have a debt to God that needs to be repaid, and that we can look to God for mercy. Here, this song, these songs in Psalm 125 and 126 are about looking up for assurance. Assurance is the opposite of doubt. Doubt is that creeping feeling that you're getting it wrong. And the big question this morning that this text is going to try to, to tackle for us is, how can I be sure it will get better? <laughs> Maybe you've been 
trying to walk with the Lord. You've been trying to be faithful to God, and you're wondering, why bother? Am I even sure that this is going to pay off? Am I even really confident that, that this is the way? And maybe I should take a different way. Maybe I should go, go down a different path. Maybe you found yourself wondering this. And the question that really that this psalm, these psalms are trying to answer is how can we be sure? That level of certainty without necessarily having it is described by a word that we call confidence. When you have confidence in something, you've yet to see how it's going to play out, but you understand and you know and you have a positive expectation that it will because the ones that you're relying on are trustworthy. And these psalms try to answer this question of how we can be sure it will get better with a very simple yet sometimes difficult to grasp answer, which is this. It's that the Lord is our confidence. In the midst of an unstable world, the Bible says God is to be your confidence. He's the assurance. He is the ground and the basis. This is really important because as life knocks us upside the head and we get sort of rolled by the waves and as we find ourselves in seasons of dryness and seasons of change, seasons of instability, we even had an earthquake in Melbourne this week. As we find ourselves in these shaking times, we can often think, I have to rely on myself. It's up to me. But here, the one big thing that you need to take away today is that God is telling you to trust him, to rest your confidence in him, even more than yourself. I like what Nancy DeClass Walford said. She said, God grants to those who trust stability, security, and confidence. Stability, security, and confidence. That sounds great, doesn't it? Some of you might be thinking, it's been a long time since I've felt stability, security, and confidence. But yet this is the experience of those who trust the Lord. And the reason the Lord is our confidence and we can affirm this and we can state this with some certainty is because of what Jesus has done. And so the big reason behind that sort of holds all this together is that Jesus has established God's righteousness. The picture of the world is that we are living in an evil age. I know that's not popular to say. A lot of people don't want to hear that. But the Bible says that this age is characterized as evil. But Jesus came to deliver us from this time. And through his death on the cross and his rising from the grave and his ascending into heaven, God has firmly established that he is the one ruling, that righteousness will prevail that his king is on the throne. As we come to these psalms this morning, we're going to see that we find two reasons within them that we may be assured in the Lord as we walk in righteousness. Two, re two reasons we will be assured. Two, two reasons that, that we can endure or keep going. Two, two reasons to counter that thought that says, why bother? What's the point? 
two reasons to sort of almost like runners in the bowling alley so you don't throw a gutter ball. Two reasons that, that keep us on the straight path. The first reason we're going to see from Psalm 125 is that God surrounds, present tense, God surrounds his people for protection. The second reason we're going to see in Psalm 126 is that God sought, past tense, sought his people for restoration. That God surrounds his people for protection and God sought his people for restoration. This is what we're going to see this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to find one, open it up. Uh, I'll try to put the words on the screen, but sometimes I, I can't keep up. <laughs> As we look at Psalm 125, we find the first reason here and that God surrounds us for protection. And, and the, the main theme of this psalm for us today is that what we see now is not what will be because Jesus now holds the scepter. You say, what is that all about? Well, it'll make sense when we get into the psalm. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Those who trust in the Lord. This is the first time in the songs of ascent that that word trust has appeared, which is really strange because the word trust in the Old Testament is found nowhere with more frequency than the Psalms. And yet here in these songs that are about the journey, these songs that are about going up to worship the Lord, it is here that it appears for the first time. Note, this is a description of those who trust in the Lord. The word for trust there means to be at rest in, to be settled in, undisturbed. Those who are resting in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. You say, I'm not really familiar with Mount Zion. I've heard of Mount Everest. I've heard of K2. I've heard of Mount Kosciuszko. I've heard all these. I'm not really familiar with Mount Zion. I know it's sort of this biblical place. Is it a real thing? Yes. <laughs> Mount Zion is a real place. It was the description of the mount upon which the fortress of Jerusalem sat. And so Jerusalem is on a hill. It's not quite K2 or Everest. It's on a hill. And, and, and that was called Mount Zion. It's the place where God dwelled with his people. And it was meant, as we've seen somewhat emphatically in Psalm 46, verses 3 to 5, it's seen there as a source of protection, as a refuge. And here the picture is, those who trust in the Lord are like that mountain. It's, it's, it's settled. They're at rest and at peace. Derek Kidner would say that true religion starts at the center, the Lord in whom all things, Mount Zion included, hold together. True faith has God at it as its center. Now sometimes we get this twisted because we're, we're so eager to persuade people of, of the glory of Jesus Christ and how, how significant his work was that, that we begin to to talk about Jesus in a way that tells people of how he's going to benefit them. And that's true. Jesus is of great benefit to all of us, to the whole world. But sometimes what's lost when we speak in those terms is that we can present the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way as, as if he's a product that you might want to buy. 
But the problem with that is that the appeal of all marketing is a self-centered appeal. It says, you, you will benefit from this. But here the picture is, those who would be true worshipers have God at the center, not themselves. I suspect many people, if he said, look, your life could be described like a mountain, most people would probably say, well, I want to be Everest. I want to be the mountain that, that, is, that is high above. I want to be the one that people talk about. I want to be the one that people look up to. I want to be the one that people say, isn't that a great mountain? You think of the famous mountains across the earth. You think of the Matterhorn. You think of some of the mountains in the Andes in South America. But here, as Kidner says, the most stable mountain is the one where the Lord dwells. A confidence that rests in him. The author goes on in verse 2 to describe this. He says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The psalmist takes the metaphor and shifts it and moves it. He, he says that if, if those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, this, this impregnable, this, this, this settled and secure space, if they're like that, well, well as, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, guess what? That's the Lord surrounding his people, both now and forevermore. I have not been to Israel, so I'm, I'm not speaking as one who's a first-hand eyewitness, but in the things that I've read, this is a very apt description. Now, we're not to imagine this as, as if Mount Zion is, is sort of the one at the center and there's this, this really tight ring of mountains all around it. It's... It, it's rather more the fact that the mountains that are around it, and there are mountains on nearly every side, those that are around it are taller than Mount Zion. So that if you were approaching Jerusalem, you wouldn't see Mount Zion. You would see the other hills around it. It's only as you climbed the other hills, such as the Mount of Olives, you could then see down and see Mount Zion. But if you were approaching, Mount Zion would be hidden, and that's a picture of the protection that the Lord offers his people. The idea here is that God is surrounding those who belong to him now and forevermore in the current circumstance and on into eternity. Have you ever felt so vulnerable and weak you just wanted somebody to hide you? to cover you. The picture here is that God is acting as the wall between his people and their enemies. It's a psalm that speaks of protection. The psalm says God will protect you. Maybe you need to hear that today. You're wondering, who's looking out for me? How am I going to actually make it? Should I continue on this path of righteousness? The psalmist says, if you trust in the Lord, you won't be shaken because the Lord surrounds and protects his people. He hides them in the cleft of the rock. 
This is really important because oftentimes our instinct is to build up our own walls and to build up our own barriers. To construct things that will wall us in. But here, the call of the God's word is to say, let the Lord be that protection for us. The psalmist moves in verse three to this. He says, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the, right, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. The picture here is that of a rod, a, a ruler's rod or scepter, and it is, it is resting, it's literally leaning over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. There's two reasons that the psalmist is confident that this current circumstance is only temporary. The first reason is that the wicked are governing something that belongs to the righteous. The wicked are having their say in a space they should not have their say. Those who are evil and devious and crooked, as this psalm would go on to say, those who set themselves up to be God and who, who reject his rightful rule and authority, who reject his truth, who reject his morality, their authority is resting over the righteous right now. And God says that is not their prerogative. Jesus would say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. <laughs> the picture throughout scripture is that God reserves a place and a portion, an inheritance, a lot. God reserves these things for the righteous. He reserves them for his people. But here, there is an evil power holding sway over it. It's the wicked. Can I just say, isn't it good to just hear that out loud? Isn't it refreshing for somebody to just say, it's not all good. One of the things I love about God's word is it doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat the reality that we find ourselves in. The experience of God's people who were in exile, which we'll get to a little later, they knew what it was like for somebody else to be ruling over a place that God had given to them. So the first reason that, that this evil rule will not continue, it won't remain, is that God has not given it to them. God has given his inheritance, his portion, his place, his kingdom to the righteous. For people who say, well, why doesn't God just let everybody in, you know? You find that these days. If you read around wide enough, you'll find people who even call themselves Christian who say, you know what? Everybody gets into the kingdom. Everyone, everyone. It's not true. It is absolutely not true. If you read about the kingdom that God is going to establish, and I don't care whether you pick the last few chapters of Revelation where you, where you go to the teachings of Jesus in, in Matthew, chapter 7 and a few other places, whether you go to this psalm, the picture is that when God establishes his kingdom, he is going to draw a definitive barrier that will keep the unrighteous out. They will not have authority in his kingdom. 
The first reason they will not rule and why things won't remain the same is because God's given his kingdom to the righteous. The second reason is if God were to allow it to persist, he recognizes that the righteous ones might be tempted to turn to wickedness. Another refreshing reminder from the word of God. There is a strain, there is a burden, there is a cost, there's a heaviness to living righteously in an unrighteous world. And God understands that if he permits wickedness to carry the day and to, to carry the order in perpetuity, in other words, permanently, for on, he realizes that his people will turn away from the good path. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, he said, God understands who we are. He will not tempt us with more than we can bear, but he will provide a way of escape that we might bear up under it, that we might endure through it. God's not in the business of trying to trick people into evil and into sin but he recognizes that they must put up with it, which is why when the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, he ended his prayer by saying, lead us not into temptation or the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. Jesus knows that we can't remain like this forever. The Lord is surrounding his people. The Lord will, will ultimately turn things over. And here, here the confidence with which verse 3 is stated, this, this declaration, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land. He follows it up with a petition, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. What does it mean to be upright in heart? The word upright just means straight. It means your heart's straight. If you think about a straight road, the beauty of a straight road is you can see where you're going. You can see where the destination is. You could draw a single simple line from one place to the next. A windy road, you have to turn this way, you have to turn that way, and you're not really sure where you're going to go. The upright in heart have set God as their goal, and they will walk to him. The converse, verse 5, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. As I mentioned at the outset, Paul writes in Galatians 1, 3 to 5, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Christ went to the cross so you could be delivered out of this age. Just a few reflections on this section. Tucker and Grant note that the surrounding mountains function as a wall. It keeps the invading forces at bay. And so Yahweh surrounds his people and wards off what threatens them. As Paul would go on in his letter to Timothy, he says, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, if you're going to set that straight road for yourself, you're going to set your course for God's kingdom, and you're going to walk the way of Christ, you're going to have to clear some trees. 
There's gonna be some persecution that you have to get over. As the Christian is doing this, evildoers and imposters will be going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What a true description this is. The wicked get so turned around and twisted in their crooked paths, they're leading others astray, but they themselves are being led astray. You know what this means? They think they're right. They really think they're right. Can I just say something to you? A person's level of confidence in what they are saying does not constitute an effective measure of the truthfulness of what they are saying. I would hate to think that you would listen to what I say because I sound confident when I say it. The measure of truthfulness is does it accord with reality? Here the picture is for the church they're going to encounter people who will be fakers, if you will, and they will be twisting people around and they themselves are gonna be so convinced of their lies. So if our standard is the level of confidence they have in leading you on their path, then we are just waiting to be led astray. Instead, Paul writes, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and what have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Know the scriptures and know the lives of those who taught them to you. See, you can't fake righteousness. You can pretend, but you can't fake the fruit of God's spirit. So as we ask ourselves, how can we be sure this psalm bursts in with a restoration of confidence for us? And the psalm confidently says, God is surrounding you. He is protecting you. And what you're experiencing now is not the way it will be on into eternity. You know, interestingly enough, the psalm didn't say what would happen to the scepter. <laughs> but the New Testament declares definitively what has happened. Jesus has dethroned the wicked. He's dethroned Satan. He's dethroned his demons. He's emptied them of their power. And not only them, he's, he, he's emptied the, the, the curse and its consequence, sin, death, fear, shame, guilt, condemnation, all rightly deserved, all just punishments, but those have been emptied of their power. And now Christ holds the scepter and Christ commands righteousness. The good news is that he doesn't command righteousness simply Simply through upholding the laws and the ways of God, he commands righteousness through atonement. Righteousness through his sacrificial death. Righteousness through him taking our place. And so we know God surrounds us, even though you may not feel like a hill, you may not feel like Everest, you may feel like you're totally exposed. Nevertheless, Christ is sitting on the throne right now. He knows his people. He protects them. 
You say, but I've read some stories about Christians who've had bad things happen to them. And, and how can that be true? How can God protect his people when, when he allows them to suffer these things? It's a good question. And we don't have time to unpack it all here. I encourage you to think on it. But I will give you sort of two footholds. First of all, the first foothold. The Bible presents the journey of faith as one of following after Jesus. And we know that for Jesus, his path to glory came through submission to the Father and resurrection life through the power of the Spirit. So too, our path is gonna follow the same journey through submission of our will to the Father following in faith after Jesus Christ, that we will then experience the resurrection power of the Spirit. Now you can experience that power in yourself right now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells you and who has been poured out. But we also know that there will be a fuller, a more glorious resurrection. The resurrection complete. Where not only spiritually will, will we be renewed, but physically, mentally, emotionally, at the level of our will, in, in, in our attitudes, in, in, in our inclinations, in, in our capacities, in our physical existence, in everything of who we are, the totality of that will be resurrected through the power of the Spirit when Christ returns. Which leads us to the next foothold. Not a comfortable one, but it is a sure foothold. The kingdom that God is bringing transcends your physical earthly life. And so if we would participate in the eternal kingdom, we may, we will, at some point, need to forego this one, which is described as evil. Again, following Christ through, resting in the reality of an eternal kingdom. That's the first reason that we may be assured in the Lord. The second reason that we may be assured in the Lord is that God sought his people, past tense, for restoration. In Psalm 126, we see that God sought us as well for restoration. And here we're assured by the fact that what God has begun, he will complete. And importantly, Jesus redeems tears no less than souls. Really important. Read with me, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored our fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Note, past tense. There's a lot of discussion around these verses, but most likely it's looking at a past event. So verses one to three are recalling the joy that they had in remembering what God had done for them. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, some translated as, as brought back the captives. They're very similar, very similar ideas, but the picture here is one of a reversal. And if this psalm, like perhaps many of these psalms, come to us from the time of the exiles returning to the land, then this makes a lot of sense. 
When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Probably better said, we were filled with joy. So here the psalm begins with a recollection of of their, their overwhelming sense of joy and celebration at what God had done for them. They're looking back at the past intervention of God in their lives and in the lives of their people, and they're saying, do you remember? Do you remember when God brought that about? Do you remember when he turned that tide, when he brought us back? Do you remember that? Have you ever been a part of something in your life? Maybe you have a memory. It, was, it just felt too good to be true. And, and, and you, the moment's happening, and you're, you're, you're sitting around, I, I can't believe this is happening, you know? Maybe you were on a game show, and somebody called you up, and they said, hey, guess what? You're, you know, you won $10,000, and you're like, is this really happening to me? Maybe it was when, you know, you, you proposed to your partner, and they said, yes, like, is, this, is this really happening? I can't, this is going to happen. I can't believe this. Maybe. Maybe you got that promotion. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know what, what it is, but the, the sense here is that this experience is so overwhelmingly joyful. They, can't, they just can't help but laugh. What a wonderful picture. And an important practice. As they're journeying, as they're going up to, to, to prepare, to, to go to the Lord's presence, to offer themselves to worship. So too, you and I, as we go through this life, as we, as we go each day to wake up in the morning, to offer ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm the living sacrifice today. I gladly offer myself on your altar. As we prepare to do that, how important it is that we recall what God has done in the past. Do you remember that moment when grace clicked I'll never forget it for me. I had an experience of God's goodness in my life when I was in high school, but there were things I didn't really understand, and I'll never forget, I was, I was sitting in a class, it was a theology class at Wheaton College, and Daniel Trier, who's a great theologian, was, was up on the board trying to teach us sort of the, the fundamental principles, and I was struggling to understand if God is, is fully in control of, of everything, how is he not just sort of picking and choosing who gets in and who gets out? And, and, and how can grace be real if he knows what I'm going to do? Isn't it really just about my performance? And I had these questions in my mind. And I was really wrestling with this idea that I would actually be forgiven. And I'm not going to walk through the lecture and what he gave, but I'll never forget. He stood there at the whiteboard with his marker, and we just talked it through. And I, and I left that class absolutely laughing. Unbelievable, because I realized, oh my goodness, God has forgiven me. I don't need to earn it. I don't need to, I can't, I can't merit it. If it was lavished on me, I don't have to go figure out another source from where to get it. I just need to get washed in it. And I remember I was laughing hysterically going out. I had a class right after that. It was, just, it was just up the hill. I walked up the hill, walked into the next class. And I'm still smiling and laughing and my, and my, my, my classmates in media and politics, right? This is political science classes that, that you take. 
my classmates in media and politics, you know, we're all very cynical, sort of scrutinizing people. They look at me, what are you so happy about? I said, come over here. I got to show this to you. Do you remember when grace clicked for you? Do you remember? Do you remember that? The joy of knowing you've been forgiven. The picture here is that they're looking back on when God has reversed all of these things for them. And notice it wasn't just them who were experiencing it. The nations stood up and took notice. The nations said, Yahweh did great things for you. And we were filled with joy. See, part of the joy is the reversal. But here, it turns to a lament and a petition. Verse four, restore our fortunes, Lord. It's literally the same word. When we, <laughs> it's the same, the same phrase used at the beginning of the psalm. When the Lord restored our fortunes. <clears throat> Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the arid desert to the south, and it was dry and really inhospitable, but it was famous for the fact that in, in certain seasons, they could get a short burst of intense rain. And in that rain, the, the, the dry riverbeds, these, these dry sort of channels would flood, and they would flood suddenly. And almost overnight, life would spring up in this, in this dry place. And so here the psalmist is saying, Lord, restore our fortunes like you do those streams. We're in a dry season. We're, we're in a space where we're just, we feel like two clods of dirt just being rubbed together. Lord, Lord, bring in the rain. It's a picture of sudden restoration. Lord, come suddenly, restore us suddenly. And then five and six, the image shifts to an agricultural one. And listen to this. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Sowing and weeping, the psalmist says, will turn into singing and reaping. <laughs> Sowing and weeping will turn into singing and reaping. Sowing is a toilsome task. It's an act of faith. It's dropping a seed in the ground. Doing it while you're crying makes it even harder. It's a picture of persisting in hope even when you don't feel hopeful. But yet the outcome is going to be singing, which is an expression of, of lightness and, and hilarity, a, a spirit that's been lifted, lifted spirits but arms full. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So much in your hands from what God has given. This is the outcome. I like what McCann said here. Sowing is always an act of anticipation and hope. <laughs> Sowing is always an act of anticipation and hope. I'll never forget, I was listening to a preacher talk about how do we keep reading our Bible when, when things feel dry, when I go to the Lord and I feel like I'm not getting anything. And he said, look, sometimes it feels that way. He said, but this is what I, this is what I remember. 
He said, every time I pick up the word of God and every time I go to spend time with him and every time I offer my petition with him, even if I can't see him, even if it feels dry, even if it feels like work, he said, I just imagine I'm picking up a shovel and I grab that shovel and I dig it into the dirt and I just keep digging and I dig the hole bigger and I may come back the next day and there's my hole. It looks no different than the rest of the dry ground but I keep digging and I dig and I dig. And over a period of, of time, the hole gets bigger and bigger. And you might say the hole doesn't matter, but when the rain comes, when the rain comes, I'm full. Sowing, similarly, is an act of anticipation and hope. Walking in righteousness, living by faith, is an act of trust. It's, it's, it's anticipating that God's going to reward you. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says in 11, chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please him without faith. Anyone who comes to God must believe he exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. That's exactly what this is saying. I like what Henry Nouwen wrote in his book, Turn My Morning Into Dancing. He said this, by inviting God into our difficulties, we ground life even if it's sad moments, in joy and hope. Have you invited God into your difficulties? Have you invited God into this space? The psalmist doesn't say, those who sit in the corner weeping will return with songs of joy and arms full of sheaves. No, no, no. Those who sow in tears Not those who cower in the corner and lick their wounds. Those who continue, those who persevere, those who walk forward in faith. Are we walking forward, Windsor District Baptist Church? Are we leaning into the reality of who we are as the people of God right now? Are we resting on that? Are we walking in righteousness or are we simply waiting? It starts with an invitation into these moments. And our lives will be grounded with joy and hope. the promises of a great reward. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 22, when he's talking about the grand vision at the end. In God's kingdom, he says, no longer will they build houses and others live in them, <laughs> or will they plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will enjoy the work, will long enjoy the work of their hands. What a beautiful picture. Nothing's gonna be wasted. In the kingdom of God, what you sow in faith will, be, will, will reap a harvest of righteousness. And it reminds us that God has sought us for restoration. You see, the work that Christ accomplished on the cross is, is our confidence in moving forward. It ought to encourage us. It ought to make us lean in. We remember what Jesus did so that we might continue in the future. Derek Kidner, again, memory so far from slipping into nostalgia gives the impetus to hope. When you look at the work of Christ, you're not meant to just sort of go back to that time in your life when you felt close to God. That's not what you're supposed to, to go into when you remember Christ on the cross. 
You remember, when you look at Christ on the cross, you remember the work that God has done so that you might go forward in hope. There's a big difference between memory and nostalgia. The church doesn't need to be nostalgic right now. We do not need to get lost in trying to recapture the feeling that we had two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We don't need to get lost in nostalgia. <clears throat> we do need to remember Christ. We do need to remember the work of God. <clears throat> Excuse me while I clear my throat. <laughs> So here are these psalms, they give us two wonderful reasons that we can remain assured. God is actively and presently surrounding his people right now. He's, he's actually more than that, he's indwelling his people right now for your protection. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. And it's a reminder to us of that second reason, that God sought his people for the purpose of restoration. He died for you, not that you might simply get your guilt removed. He died for you that you'd be brought into flourishing with him. Not just for a season of 60, 70, 80 years, if the Lord would grant you that. But for all eternity, that you would never die, that you would never have to experience death, that the story would just, would just go on blissfully forever. I love what Beekner said, and maybe this resonates with you. He said, it's not objective proof of God's existence that we want. Some people want that, and there's a season when, when you want to know, God, I just want to know that you exist. <laughs> but we want an experience of God's presence. We don't just want to know that God is running the show. We don't just want to know that God is up there, you know, bringing glory to his name through the stars and the planets. And that's, look, it's well and good and it's great and it's glorious. But let's be honest, in our heart of hearts, we want to experience his presence for ourselves, don't we? Beekner goes on to say, it's the miracle that we are really after. And also, I think, the miracle that we really get. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world will speak about how we might present ourselves to God. But Christianity is unique in this in that no other religion, in no other religion does God rescue the reprobate, rescue the sinners by becoming one of them. This is the miracle that we get. This is the gospel. And so, by way of application, I want you to just simply look to Jesus as the destroyer of doubt. 
through the resurrection, which is God's historical verification, his proof of what he's done through the resurrection Jesus has convincingly shown that he accomplished the work that God gave him to do. And so he is now our security. He's our security now and he's our security forever. So when we look up for assurance, be sure that we see Jesus. This Psalm has wonderful pictures, wonderful pictures of the way God protects his people. This, this picture of God surrounding his people and them being like a mountain that won't be shaken. This picture of the removing of the scepter from the, from the hand of the wicked. This picture of, 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 of a torrent of blessing, a, a, a sudden change in your life a sudden flourishing that redeems your life, but also your tears, also your sorrow, that turns it into gladness. All of this, all of this was promised. And all of this is confirmed in Jesus. He is God's yes. Yes. Wondering if I'm gonna do that? Yes. Thinking I might have changed my mind? I haven't. See Jesus. <laughs> Wondering if it's actually gonna all pan out, if it's, if, if it's gonna get better? Yes. Jesus is God's yes to all of these promises. And what's left for us is to say amen. Let it be. Let's pray. Father, would you assure those who are doubting would you strengthen our hearts through grace? And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters who are in times of deep turmoil and struggle right now, who are struggling to see, who feel like giving up, and who are wondering why they should bother. Lord, may their minds not be filled with simply nostalgic longings for what could be different, but may their minds be filled with the effective and this effectiveness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Would you receive our praises now, we pray in your name, amen.